All right, we're here with Sideshow, who I don't think needs an introduction. He's out of visa hell. He's made it back <laughs> to the States just in time to catch the stage playoffs and then proceeded to get himself involved in another, ad, I guess, RPG, or an action RPG duel with Bren after uh, first it was Dark Souls. Now it's Sekiro, which is such a dope game. It's so um, good. It's so actually good. fantastic. Uh, you were streaming that when I passed out last night, and you were also streaming it when I got it for the gym for this morning. I don't know how you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, um, I've done back-to-back 12-hour streams of that game, and I still don't insane. feel like I've played too much of it. It's, a, oh it's Honestly, if you haven't played it and you love Dark Souls games, I couldn't recommend the game more. I, it's, the, it's the best game that I've played in years, actually. I picked it up last week. It is so frustrating, though. It, and it's got to be true. even more that's frustrating true. when Bren is in the other room. <laughs> yes, especially when he runs into my room and tries to mess with me while yeah. I'm doing a boss or something. So we had kind of like a planned schedule here, but of course we decided to start this pod on a day when it seems like all the Overwatch League teams waited to um, stay out April Fool's Day and release all of these huge trades on Tuesday afternoon at the same time. Of so course. For, I was thinking, I was wondering to myself, Bench, why on earth have they all been su- synced up on the 2nd of April? They had to avoid yesterday. Yeah, that's, that's so gotta funny. be it. I completely forgot about that. All those ridiculous announcements that were coming yesterday that were fake were just kind of the prequel to what was going to come today. So for anyone that missed so far, I mean, this is it's very possible that more stuff is going to break while we're recording this. But so far, from what we can see, it looks like the Boston Uprising and the Dallas Fuel swapped off tanks. RCK to Boston, note to Dallas. Um, I know that from talking with some people, um, Note was a player that I think Dallas had either trialed or wanted to trial in the offseason back when Boston was kind of letting some of its players uh, who were still on contract trial. So Striker, I'm trying to think who else. Obviously Neko, and then... Who else am I thinking? Uh, Gamsu and Note. I think yeah. that they were, you know, they were okay with letting those players go in the offseason, provided they got the right asking price. Um, from what I heard, Note's asking price was a little steep. I don't know if that, you know, team shied away because of that, but Note's, in my opinion, an outstanding Diva player. And we were kind of talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, for that direct swap, if those are the only two players involved, Boston probably had to get some extra money involved because, in my opinion, oh, sure. Note is just a, a far superior diva player than uh, RCK. What do you think about about that move? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think on, on its face value, it almost looks like Dallas have absolutely fleeced Boston. They, uh, I think Note is up there with the best Western divas, along with Poco and Space. Um, uh, and from his performance last season, it seems like he's pretty coachable. He seems like a good personality. He doesn't look like the kind of guy that's going to get tilted or is averse to learning new styles. He was powerful for them in uh, even in stage one when Diva really doesn't have that big a performance inside Goats. They were crafting little strategies to be able to make sure that Note could you know, really dive in and punish people. So you had the most Zenyatta kills out of any diva in the league. They had this like set little strategy with him. And RCK, 
got he kind of got bigged up a lot when he was playing in European contenders, but just from watching his VODs, I was never that impressed with him. It always seemed like he got a little overrated by the fact that he played on Giganti in a GOATS meta and was getting these giant diva bombs, but it kind of seemed like people didn't understand that that was a lot to do with the team setup. His, his bomb placement is good, but just his, his default diva play, I think, is... Not that it's bad. It seems like it is owl level, but I wouldn't say that it's on the same level as note. So I totally agree with you. There's got to be a big exchange of money here because there's no way that the Boston Uprising get fleeced. They they are the ones who do the fleecing. They are the ones who fleece. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's got to be money involved. I don't know if there's another player. You would think that they would have announced if there was another player involved in the deal at yeah. the same time. So it's it's got to be money. Yeah, and who would they even want as well? I think RCK kind of fits the Boston style because if they take RCK and develop him as a player and, and make him better, they can then sell him for more later on as well. And that just seems to be Boston Uprising's uh, method. They also announced that they were picking up another flex support from the Pacific region as well. As if they need Persia. More. Yeah, yeah his Persia. Persia. He's from uh, Talon. I mm. really don't know much about him. I don't, I don't know, know anything you... about this guy, but but Huck's gonna Huck, as yeah. someone said in my Discord. It's earlier. such a Boston move. It really is. I think that um, I think this is such a huge move for Dallas because uh, I, I know that, or I shouldn't say I know. I think one of the reasons that this team had moved to playing the somber variant of Goats more is that they just didn't feel like RCK was delivering in the diva role. Kind of mm. speaks back to what you said about how he might have been you know, playing within Giganti's system at the time and maybe just wasn't working out in Dallas. But I do really believe that that was the reason why they kind of specifically because of RCK, why they moved into the Sombra Goats variant. And he was actually, I thought he was pretty good with his Sombra. He played it a little bit yeah. differently, I thought. He wasn't um, he wasn't always back there looking to farm EMPs really quickly. It was more about trying to hack priority targets, which I think sort of threw some teams for a loop early on. I thought Boston, maybe at halftime when Fuel had gone up 2-0, I thought... Boston was actually a team that sort of figured that out and then Absolutely. turned the tide. Yeah. But yeah. If they someone were clearly wants to, impressed. If someone wants to look back at a VOD of how to counter that style of Sombra Goats, Boston did a fantastic job. And Note was actually the guy that was shutting down RCK For sure. as well. Weird. And then another trade that happened today, or not even a trade, it looks like San Francisco sent Baby Bay to the Atlanta Reign. I guess that's perhaps a replacement for Defran. What are your thoughts about that one? That is a strange one, isn't it? Um, clearly, Baby Bay wasn't being utilized and was unlikely to be utilized on the San Francisco Shock. They have so many excellent DPS players, and Baby Bay's got kind of a, a bit of a limited hero pool that he can play at like a truly owl level. Um, but moving him onto Atlanta is a little strange because one of the great things about Defran is that he seemed like he was a very intelligent player that could pick up a bunch of different heroes and he had the mechanical ability to be able to make them work and maybe he wouldn't be you know kind of Defran god tier like he is on soldier on all of those heroes but he did seem like he could pick up most things so you've just got somebody who and I think that um he was probably a decent presence on the team in terms of being able to uh uh communicate effectively as well now i think baby bay's got a very cool head on him i think he's a very good team player he clearly wants the best for the team he didn't seem like he was being a uh being a diva on the bench um for the san francisco shock anyway so even if he doesn't see playtime on atlanta even if they do go with ursto who i think they'll just run all the time mm -hmm. and and Leia, which they'll probably run for i mean the weird thing there as well is that and and baby bay have got overlapping hero pools in a bunch very of similar. different roles as well so 
I, it doesn't make sense from a hero pool point of view to me. I, and I think one of Baby Bayard and Leia is going to have to broaden their their pool. And both of those guys are fairly aggro, aim heavy, a bit of a tendency to feed kind of players as well. So I don't know, strange trade. But Baby Bay is fantastic at uh, marketing. So maybe the only thing I could think of is I remember last year one of the things that Brad had said about that's another connection too. You have to make Brad. Brad had mentioned that yeah. Baby Bay was a more of like a vocal personality within comms um, and he could lead. And I even know that Krusty had mentioned that in stage four, I think that there were a couple of times where he brought in Baby Bay and people were a little surprised because Baby Bay hadn't seen play in a while. And Krusty had then said that it had to do with his shot calling and just his in-game leadership. Something that I actually think, and I don't really know if this is true or not, but just from watching a lot of Atlanta VODs, I think that there's been some calm issues there. It looks like there's some miscommunication about when the team is looking, when the team's frontline and the rest of the pieces are going to go aggro. It seems like there's just this breakdown between um, Pokepo and the supports. I, I did an article a while ago about just how they were the team that really started using their uh, their Zenyatta ult more in a um, tempo style, where they weren't mm. really weren't looking to uh, like combo or to counter grab with it. And yeah, that's there were times where Dogman. Dogman would just go in with the the trank and Pokepo wouldn't follow. He'd still be there with his shield up. And then you'd see like two seconds later, shield would go down, he'd move in. So maybe they just need more, um, you know, shot calling in the team. Yeah, uh, that's, that's I, I something think that, that I could see. That is evident in the communication as well. We get We are able to listen to the comms as part of the Overwatch League and get an insight into the teams. And I would say that, Coming into the league, the, one of the reasons that I rated Atlanta so low, despite the fact that they have in, incredible talent individually on their team, mm-hmm. is that I was worried about their communication, both in terms of you know having volatile players, potentially, like Dufran on the team, as well as having such a split between the Koreans and the English speakers. Um, I was worried how that would end up. And from listening, it does seem like they've got some issues that they really need to fix. Um, whether Baby Bay fixes that, I'm, I'm not totally sure. But I think it it could go a, a decent way to fixing it if he's a fairly commanding, charismatic presence within the comms. And, and just staying positive as well is such a big thing. That could be it then. All right, so I'm just going through Twitter right now. That looks like the only trades that we've seen so far. Um, I'll keep checking in case anything pops up. But for now, I guess we can go back to your regularly scheduled Red broadcast. <laughs> I was going to start off with just uh, asking you about what you thought about. Um, I mean, we've talked about stage one enough. I'm more so interested in just the, I guess, the narratives that were around two teams in particular, uh, the Vancouver Titans and the San Francisco Shock coming into the season. So with, we'll start off with the stage one champions, Vancouver. Um, mm. They were the first Overwatch League team to go undefeated in a stage and win a stages playoff tournament, uh, albeit in a obviously a shorter slate of matches in the stage, yeah. but also a more, you know, a more pronounced 18 playoff bracket there. Um, going back to Runaway, the core of this team, you know, they came in with pre-existing synergy. They were familiar. A lot of people say that they were familiar with the meta to an extent. I think that's kind of a misnomer because 3-3 really wasn't being played that much back in season two of Contenders Korea. It kind of started uh, in the very last week there and then maybe saw a little bit more play in the, playoffs, but I don't think that the narrative that they were like this um, champion GOATS team coming into Overwatch League was really, uh, I I think it almost undersells the 
evolution of that team and just how quickly they were able to adapt to that meta. Uh, what were your thoughts on Vancouver coming into the season and were you expecting to see the kind of performance that they gave us? Um, no, I wasn't expecting them to be utterly dominant. Um, I, I rated them, I think end of season power rankings, I had them somewhere around fourth. So I thought they'd be a very good team. Last season when people were saying, oh, you know, run away only winning contenders because all the good teams have left. Go and look at this team play. They look excellent in the way that they're actually performing. So I thought that they would have easily made the playoffs last year. Now, how they would have performed, I, I, there was no way really to tell because how do you rate a team that's never performed against any of the Overwatch League teams against the Overwatch League teams? Um, but, but coming in, it was clear that they were a good team. There were a bunch of question marks about how good they would really be. In terms of their familiarity with the meta, though, I actually think they were pretty familiar with this meta because they just carried on scrimming after the um, after the, you know goats had had come into there. And by all accounts, they were a very powerful team against the owl teams that were scrimming against them in Korea. And they were, you know, they had they they basically had this like the Korean training dojo of being mm -hmm. able to play against a bunch of those other top teams that were playing goats at the time. Uh, so I don't think that they were scrambling like a bunch of other teams were. That's to, a good point to uh to get to grips with the meta because they stayed as a full team whereas a bunch of other teams were having to figure out how to play as a team what their style was and then figure out the meta at the same time and also a lot of the coaches had to figure out the meta and a bunch of them hadn't uh you know hadn't figured that out or, or hadn't even really started by the time overwatch league began because there was so other logistical things and uh and synergy issues to get in place but that I think the idea of saying that the Vancouver Titans, oh, it was just their their team synergy of just being a, a you know a pre-existing team. If you if you took another team from contenders, I don't think they'd do anywhere near this well. I think this is going to make people overrate team synergy. If anything, I think Vancouver are just an excellent, excellent team, and and they have always been carried by this excellent team synergy. I don't think they've ever been a team that's just stacked with individual outrageous talent. Uh, even when they were doing really well in Contenders and even back in Apex, they were very good at being able to support each other and know where everybody was going and uh, and always had a plan to be able to be better than the sum of their parts. Um, so so I think that the, the team synergy thing is, is quite specialized to the Vancouver Titans. And I am not sure what it is that's made this team so good where other teams have stuck together for a long time but haven't developed that level of teamwork and team chemistry but as for their legacy as well i mean the uh, the playoff run that they did yes it's it's smaller but they've still won 10 matches in a row which was what the boston uprising uh did throughout the regular stage and then won uh, a few more in the previous stage, a few after that. So I think Vancouver are very, very much in for a shout of overtaking Boston Uprising's win streak record of 14 from last season. And, and that in itself is a fantastic achievement. Do you think, so And I don't want to get into too much meta talk about next stage. I'd rather, you know, let it un, uh, basically envelop, I guess. But do you think, I, I guess we have to at least address a little bit that we're probably going to move a little bit away from uh, the high pick rate of goats. I think yeah. that we'll see a little bit more. I've been talking to some teams. It sounds like a little bit more experimentation right now with triple DPS comps, 
um, with ball. And then there's a little bit more bunker comps, uh, Winston goats with all the, the balance changes to, uh, beam damage on, on armor and, uh, the boop changes to make Winston goats a little bit more viable. Now, do you think that any of those changes in any way potentially limit the ceiling for, uh, for, for Vancouver, or if not limit the ceiling, if it allows other teams to kind of stack back up and, and close the gap between, I guess you can call it like the big three of NYXL, probably shock right now in Vancouver. Yeah, I do think that the the next meta is not a great one for the Vancouver Titans, actually. When I was theorycrafting what could go wrong for Vancouver, I was thinking, okay, if it was a like a very strong Widowmaker meta, then I don't really know how good Stitch and Hureg are going to be able to match up against uh, some of, you know, absolute elite competition in the league. Um, they're, they're pretty good, but then I, I would consider them fairly average when it comes to the Overwatch League kind of level. Um and then the other one that we look like we're going into is a triple DPS kind of meta, because as far as I'm aware, Janu doesn't really play DPS. And even when we saw Titans incredibly rarely flex over to a triple or a quad DPS kind of strategy, it uh, people theorized that they were trolling because Bumper was on Hanzo and Janu was on Wrecking Ball. But just from talking to their team uh, before the league, which now doesn't really it doesn't unveil anything because the meta is about to change, but they were practicing that strategy from the beginning, like before the season even began a little bit, because if it was viable, the, their best way of pulling that off was with Bumper running DPS and with Janu running the Wrecking Ball. So the, it seems like potentially Janu's not one of those off tanks that can just flex over and play a decent DPS on on some hero, you know, that you would need to be able to make the triple DPS work. And from now, the, the scrim environment does change incredibly quickly. But from a few that I was able to watch, it does seem like triple DPS is going to be run on at least a bunch of control point maps, if not slightly wider than that. So I'm a bit concerned with what Vancouver do, but they are very intelligent. And I figure they they'll probably be able to adapt around it a little bit. But honestly, their Winston Goats didn't look that great either, the few times that they played that. So I don't know. Vancouver Titans were certainly... Their performance in Stage 1 was one of the best we've ever seen in, in Overwatch history, in my opinion. The teamwork was absolutely fantastic. But when we move into this next meta, I, I, I'm concerned for them. Because this is also where things like the new environment is going to kick in, in my opinion. When people had concerns about Vancouver Titans moving to North America, I, I thought to, to, have, to have the expectation that that would sink in in Stage 1 was kind of wrong. Because you're only here for five weeks, it kind of feels like a mini tournament. But and they got here like literally happened. five days before the season started too. Exactly. I mean, it must have just felt like a big holiday. But yeah. once you've won Stage 1, and now you have to reset and begin again. This is where it's going to be mentally draining, I think, for the Vancouver Titans um, in a brand new environment. Because now it's going to sink in. Oh, yeah, we're actually living here. We're here for like the next uh, almost a year. And so I, I expect now to be the, a bit a bit shaky for the Titans. I think that they're going to have, and I'm not going to pull it up now. I just remember running like ELO uh, numbers for the taking like team's first stage ELO and then projecting that out to see what they're uh, very roundabout way, but like what their strength of schedule would be like for stage two. And I remember seeing Vancouver's looked like it would be a little bit more difficult this stage than it was in stage one. Obviously, they played San Francisco in the regular season, but um, obviously the balance changes is going to completely change the relative strengths of teams too. So I don't know how useful True, of an yeah. exercise that really even is, but I do remember seeing that they'd have some steeper competition, a couple like back-to-back -back 
games, I think, to uh, this stage. So it's definitely going to test their mettle. Um, one another team that I wanted to talk about was the Shock, just because you know they were runners up in the stage playoffs going into the season. Um, the Shock was a team where I felt like a lot of people were. I don't know if we were talking about Shock immediately thinking they were going to be a top like two, three, four team. I think that there was a perception of this team after season one where people had questions about Super. I think there was this narrative about Sinatra that I don't necessarily agree with. This was a group in season one where they basically got one stage to play together. And then Krusty comes in, changes everything up, uh, strategy, play style. I know from talking to some of the people there that it was a huge change for the players to get used to in that small time between when did he come in between stage three and four. So I think that I think I kind of expected this team to be a lot stronger early on. Uh, That and of course, I was hearing a lot of talk about how strong they looked compared to teams like NYXL, for example, and scrims coming into the year. Uh, What did you think about shock coming into the season and then their stage one performance? I agree with you that after stage one, people weren't too high on them. But when they made those trades and then there's, and then also I heard that they were kind of screaming pretty hard in the off season, you know, mm-hmm. I think they started practice earlier than any other team after Overwatch League season one finished. That might not be true, but they, they certainly were at it very quickly and fairly intensely. And so it, it gave me a lot of confidence that this would be a top team coming in. And I think most analysts had them in the top three, actually, for the end of season power rankings for um, uh, for season two. And I had them ranked number one for stage one as well. Now, that didn't quite play out. But mm. I do think that Shock are a more well-rounded team than the Vancouver Titans. And the fact that they were able to play them so close in that final game gives me a lot of confidence for future metas. I think the coaching staff is also fantastic. I I can't really talk about what was happening behind the scenes, but when I was listening to the communication in between the maps of that final, the stage one final between Shock and Vancouver, it just reaffirmed my my faith in the Church of Krusty and (laughs) the coaching staff behind the San Francisco Shock. Because he's so involved compared to a bunch of other coaches that in general coaching in overwatch and in overwatch league as well is very it's very hands-off it's very much about putting your players in the best position possible to be able to succeed but crusty really does have this uh this incredibly wrinkled brain that allows him to uh, give people specific guidance and and read into situations and pick his team back up. Uh, I think he's one of the best coaches in the league right now. I think the whole of the shock uh, coaching team is very good. And the pickups that they've made to be able to bulk out this roster, despite the loss of Baby Bay, I think is going to make them absolutely a powerhouse. They should be considered one of the top giants in the league right now, I think. Yeah, I do think I would personally probably put them just based on their bench. I mean, the fact that they have uh, striker and architect who barely saw any time in stage one that they can call on them if it's a more DPS heavy meta if we're going to be seeing more triple DPS comps I mean the fact that this team still has Nevix too who is a top tier off tank yeah. who would be starting on probably more than half the teams in the league to be honest yeah basically um, any other team I think I wanted to get your opinion on one other thing about this team though because I know that you've been doing a lot of like shoulder content with with a uh, super one of yeah. my favorite absolute favorite storylines of this season i've been on this so early but i've been really high on super and and sinatra for a while and i just love the whole overreaction to sinatra uh, not even sinatra's performance but just the team performance for the usa mm. and overwatch world cup and personally i just really liked seeing how the community kind of finally started to catch on to the fact that in this meta these two i probably shouldn't even restrict it to in this meta but super was 
a top, in my opinion, a top three main tank over the course yes, of stage one. And same thing with Sinatra. I mean, the two of them, it's just nice to see those players who took so much shit, I think, um, throughout the 2018 season or inaugural season, whatever you want to call it, um, kind of come back to life in the community. Notice that, right? Finally giving Absolutely. them the recognition that they deserve. But I also think that they deserve more recognition now than they did previously. I think Super and Sinatra have both leveled up massively. And honestly, it does seem to be like since the addition of, of Krusty and since the style of this team changed and since they've had more time to really work on like playing Overwatch properly, I think a lot of criticism around Sinatra in season one was trying to play as like a carry player or playing off on his own or um, this kind of thing. But in stage four, they were so much better at being able to sync up with Sinatra. And then throughout the whole of this stage, they've been excellent at being able to support Sinatra when he tries to play that kind of carry role so so that it isn't him overextending or trying to take too much on his shoulders. His team is set up to perfectly support him and they play around him as a carry player. And that, that to me is fantastic, but also super. I mean, the guy wasn't, I think a top main tank in Overwatch League Season 1. He was playing a lot of Winston as well, and his Winston, mm -hmm. I think, the one of the big things in Season 1, actually, was how effective Primal Rages were. Primal was actually a huge ult in the Stage 1 meta. Uh, sorry, the Season 1 meta. Right. Um, and Super seemed to struggle with that a little bit, and also just wasn't quite synced up with the rest of his team. Took them a while to have like a, a solid roster and stuff. So I don't think it was outrageous that Muma got picked over Super for the for the World Cup team. I think they were both on a, a pretty similar level, maybe Super with a bit more um, potential going forwards. But now, I mean, absolutely a top three main tank in, in this meta. And I would expect, just judging by the little bit of Winston that we saw as well, to that he would be able to carry this on. And he seems like an intelligent guy. They've both learned a lot. They're really benefiting from... Uh, the fact that the entire team has leveled up and they're playing a much more intelligent style of Overwatch. It's it's great to see these two incredibly young players develop so much so early on in their careers. For sure. And that's not even... I pr probably should throw in Moth there too. I mean, Moth was fantastic. He's been one of the best Lucios in the league consistently Yeah. Um, this stage yeah. too. He so, was really good last year as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about teams who... I mean, we could talk about NYXL. I feel like that performance in the stage playoffs was a little bit more of an outlier. Um, if it happens one more time, I think we really sh need to start worrying about whether this team chokes under pressure. But I feel like that's, I'm going to go with that being more of an outlier now. And I feel like this sure. team's, just their overall performances speaks more to their um, their form than that one match. But I wanted to get into, see if there were any teams that you thought in uh, stage one who you thought, surprised you whether because they overperformed your uh expectations going into the season or they underperformed i mean the the biggest underperformance by a long way was the la valiant and even after watching all of the vods of the la valiant and looking back through it i think there's uh, a bunch of errors going on there and nothing that i can really i mean th there's a lot of different individual things that you can pin down like they, they were playing a passive style, but didn't know when to make use of the opportunities. They had uh, a Lucio that didn't play make, so nobody had to be scared of taking aggressive positions against them. So they just had a natural positional disadvantage. It seems like there was some discord within the team as well. Um, it looks like they're, uh, well, who knows if they're going to restructure in the future, but it seems likely that that's going to happen. So 
but but just the the implosion of this team for me was pretty unexpected i think the reason that most people thought this team wouldn't do that well was because they lost some of their kind of big players and and people weren't convinced about like career on dps or stuff like that but this this team just imploded in terms of their their calling their structure their coaching they ended up getting rid of moon this this was a full-on massive implosion right at the beginning of the season for a team that finished second in the regular season last year and for, and should have been pretty good in this meta honestly if they'd been able to maintain that kind of level head moving into this season yeah, that was a team with, and I was actually going to ask you about them later, but we can just talk about them now. Um, there was a report last week about some potential or possible player movement there with, um, I think it was reported Fate and asking, or Fate and KSF would be going to Boston and then uh, asking and Fusions going back the other way. Um, I was talking a couple weeks ago, I don't remember where it was, but Valiant's have been a team where going back to season one, there was a lot of talk about some potential internal discord there. Um, I don't know if it was on a personal level. I don't know if it was just clicks of players. I don't know if it was butting heads with players, butting heads with staff, but there was some restructuring that happened within that org. Um, Noah Winston moved to a different role. They've been moving some coaches around. Now, from what I've heard, it had nothing to do with um, Gunba or Damon there. I think that they those were two who just kind of took uh, other opportunities outside yeah. the team, but I think that there's been some internal issues with that team, and if this trade was actually going to go through, I think it probably speaks to uh, Valiant maybe looking to go in a different direction. I don't know if that's, I don't imagine that trade's still on the table anymore. I don't know if they're going to continue looking, but I think that this is starting to go beyond, um, you know, you were talking about some of the more uh, micro things that you notice within the game. I think that there's probably something to do with that roster there where they need to start looking at uh, possibly taking an opportunity to see if they can move some players, some specific players elsewhere. It seems yeah. like fate might have an issue. I know that I've heard that that whole kooky Custa thing going on was potentially fate saying that he was having an issue playing with some of the other players there and had personally requested that uh, they try out Kuki in that role. I don't know if that's confirmed or anything, but that's what I had heard. So it just seems like there is some some internal discord there. And, uh, you know, the team, I mean, they're already 0-7. It's not like they have a whole lot of time to to go making changes if they still have any designs on making the, uh, you know, the regular season, the end of season playoffs. Yeah. Um, how about a team like, so you are, I think we were looking at each other's power rankings at one point. And Guangzhou was a team that I think you probably had a little bit higher up than I did. Um, mm. I'm just curious to know what you think about them. I think they have now, now that everybody remembers the playoffs of stage one, people are not giving enough credit, I think, to the charge. The charge actually had a pretty difficult strength of schedule. And I, I know when, when this strength of schedule argument comes up, people tend to take like the average of all of their games. But really for these top teams, it only matters if you face other top teams. Like you don't mind if you play a bunch of middle-of-the-pack teams or you f if you play a bunch of terrible teams. Yeah, they've got a slightly higher chance of beating you, but you're probably going to win anyway. It really comes down to how many top teams do each of these uh, teams face in their schedule. And Charge had the Titans twice, which was really unfortunate, and even took them to the fifth map at, at one point as well, and then faced the Gladiators once they'd had a resurgence. So I think for, for Charge, they have 
a lot of good stuff to be uh, to be happy about. It looked like Rio was playing really well. I think he's a main tank that people should keep an eye on. Um, when we move into a bunch of different metas, their, their triple DPS should be very powerful because Happy was unbelievably good at times on Widowmaker. It took him a while to warm up, but uh, once he did, he was destroying, particularly in that game against the Titans. Bumper was just having his hands completely full. Shu looks like a really fantastic flex support. Shu's amazing. I'm, yeah, I'm sure we'll see him develop throughout the season because he's a bit like Twilight in that his Zen's fantastic, but his Anna is unreal as well. And he the way shut that down. Plays both. Oh my God, Shu shut down Bumper. I can't. He must have landed. Yeah. The number of sleep darts. It, it was just like I almost was convinced that they had just scouted out Vancouver style of play and were thinking, all right, we're gonna even though it might not work in a lot of other facets of three three, we're just gonna put Shu on Anna because we're convinced that when Bumper tries to play aggro and get into the back line that we think that with the CC from Shu that we can just put him to sleep and focus on everybody else. And that's what they did. It, they made it impossible to, they must, they played so much on a widow and the game plan for, uh, for Vancouver looked like it was just trying to shut down happy. And he yeah. always had that on a pocket from Shu and it was nuts. nine times out of 10, he was just shutting down bumper. Yeah. And I think Kib was one of the best Briggs uh, as well. I think his intelligence coming from that team UK and just the way that he thinks about the game made him a very powerful uh, Brig player. Um, but again, the, I think these guys have, and, and Hopper as well actually was reasonably good, you know, better than I gave him credit for in season one for sure. Um, and yeah, I think overall this team has. A lot of people were worried about communication issues and stuff like that, but the Metabellum guys were um, learning English, as far as I'm aware, when they were on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the for a while. Organization. Well, their so, owner is um, John. He's uh, I can't think of the last name. Um, he's Canadian, though, and I think that he played right. a big role in. He kind of had the the foresight to, you know, like a year ago, probably seeing this coming, seeing how the potential, um, how the advantages of having his players learn English, and I think that he put them into. I remember seeing pictures up on Twitter from the Metabellum account where the the players after scrims they were having regular English lessons, and it seems like it paid off. Absolutely, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and the charge certainly, in my opinion, deserved to be in the playoffs. I think I would have had them as a, a, a top six, maybe even top five team. Though I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I can't remember exactly what my power rankings were like at the end of the the playoffs. But they were. Um, they they were a very got, uh, good team and just got a little unlucky. But I think if you're a Charge fan or if you're thinking about the Charge, they've got a lot of stuff to be happy about in their performance in uh, in Stage 1 and a lot of stuff that they can just continue developing in Stage 2. All right, so let's move away from the uh, top-performing teams and let's talk about the absolute shit pile that is at the bottom <laughs> of the table, all right? We already talked about Valiant. Yeah. What do you think about the Florida Mayhem? Uh, uh do you know what i'm amazed that florida and justice uh both have a win i i was convinced that florida and justice would only only one of them would have a win at this stage and it would be you, you he's know, subtweeting you philly <laughs> I, I yeah i mean philly have got to feel so i i would feel terrible if i was philadelphia fusion for gifting them that i mean yeah they weren't playing with boombox okay i'll give you a pass but but even so and it did go five maps but i mean th these teams i think the biggest thing when i watch justice and mayhem play and they are they are in a league of their own compared they to really the la valiant have presumably big internal issues and played a style that ended up screwing with them and everyone was on the wrong page. But at least they had like 
and they had a really tough strength of schedule, but at least they looked like at times they knew what they were doing, right? And they took like NYXL to five maps. They took uh, Fusion to five maps. They took Spark to five maps. Like they, they were close to winning some of these pretty tough games. Florida and Justice, when I look at them, it's like you guys just don't know what you're doing. You, no. you just don't understand like what how to play this this uh, this this match, uh, this um, meta. And that's, I think, going to be a recurring theme throughout. And in my opinion, it comes not down to the coaching staff that much. It comes down to the players. Because like I said, so much of Overwatch and coaching is about putting your players in positions to succeed. And so much of Overwatch being a player is about being able to make those correct decisions. When people say stuff like, oh, the Justice, you know, you pick up all of these pieces and as long as you have a good coaching staff, you can make them better. Right, okay, but when you release these guys into the wild, they're still going to make dumb decisions and then they're still going to fail. Because Overwatch is a game about decision making it's not a game about fragging out it's not a game about any of this stuff it, it's about the decisions you make and there's a reason that these guys uh, a lot of the, the the players that have been picked up for washington or florida we didn't think were great players it's not because they can't aim it's because they make poor decisions and so unless your coaching style can really teach each individual player and coach each individual player to make better decisions your overall team isn't going to be able to make the right decisions so i i it it pains me to watch these these teams play because it, it's uh it's poor decision after poor decision and and I'm not saying that I could do any better if I if I was in a play decision obviously I can't but when you're playing against other players that can you just get schooled. I think I agree with at least the conclusions there. I still think you have to go back at least in Mayhem's case and say you guys had a year under your belt. To, you know, we'll give you a pass. Well, I don't want to give them a pass for last season because I actually think that that was a bigger joke than Shanghai. Um, they, so they have a year under their belt. They go into the offseason and it's clear that they're looking to try and develop around a more Korean core, but yeah. they keep Tavik on. They build the team around a mostly Korean group of players. The players you bring are, the ones that you bring in are just incredibly underwhelming. I think BQB, if you're familiar with the Korean scene, BQB was legitimately in contention for one of the best Sombra players in the world when they yeah. signed him. Uh, everything else, though, is kind of a huge question mark for me. And then you go and you promote Western coaches to your OWL roster, but then you go and bring in Yeah from Lunatic High, Lucky Future Zenith's coach, with whom I've spoken with before, and he does not communicate in English. Then you sign McGravy. It's just back and forth back and forth it doesn't seem like this team knows what it wants to do it's um, I've, I've heard some things about just the communication issues between um you know yeah and the, some of the players uh his coaching style seems to be very very strange um i won't go into specifics but it just doesn't seem like his the communication between yeah potentially other coaches there the the players i don't know if the Korean players are responding to the Western coaches. I don't know if the Western players are responding with the Korean coaches there. I think that you just have to. I mean, at this point, it's too late to just say wipe the entire thing. Um, I think that they just need to decide to go in a you know full Korean direction going forward. Get rid of, see if you can sell Tavik off, see if you can sell McGravy off somewhere. Um, find a home for your other for your Western coaches. Just commit to the going full Korean. What do you think about that? I think, yeah, I, I agree with the, the premise as well that they had a very poor idea and vision of how they wanted to scout. I think the scouting for Florida and Washington was where things 
went horribly, horribly wrong right from the beginning. In terms of the Florida Mayhem's direction from, from here on out, the, one of the issues I have is that even if they do go in a full Korean direction, they have so many Korean players on the team already that are still underwhelming. I mean, yes. just getting Korean players is not, is not like a default win as much as some people in the West seem to think it is. Right. You, you have to be able to scout good players. And the reason that people pick Korean players is that there is a larger depth of talent in Korea. And so you can pick from a much wider pool of very good players and you can keep adding them into the roster later on if new upcoming people uh, show promise. But... At this point, there aren't a huge amount of uh, fantastic players to be able to get unless your scouting is very good or unless you're willing to pay a huge amount. And from the look of it, I'm not sure that I trust Florida Mayhem to pay out or scout correctly. So I'm worried that they're just going to get, yes, a full Korean roster, but a full Korean roster that still massively underperforms because they haven't understood the reason that a lot of the Overwatch League has Korean players and instead just, I don't know, see the flag and go for it. Probably the grand irony in that whole situation is that, at least to my knowledge, the Florida Mayhem are the only team that actually have people hired into positions that have Scout as a title in that mm. organization, which is just crazy. Yeah. It also... Well, I was going to say as well, for even for people who are scouting in positions like that, often management completely hamstrings them you know like i've heard so many stories about people who are going to sign fantastic talents but either the management wanted uh more western marketable people because they're a western organization or they wanted uh x player because they were more popular or they didn't respond in time so they don't manage to close the deal or they aren't willing to pay out enough and instead buy somebody who doesn't even fit so you end up losing i mean it's it's an unfortunate situation to be in if your management acts like that and i don't know whether florida's does but from the look of it it doesn't look the best from what i've heard i don't think that the individuals who are in the decision making roles there at least in terms of you know who is trialing which players they're ultimately going to sign i don't get the sense that Florida upper management hamstrung them that much. I think that they did have kind of the full range of, you know, a wide mm-hmm. latitude of, I guess, discretionary decision-making ability when it comes to which players they're going to sign. Um, just to be clear from what I've heard, I don't, I know a lot of people like to pile on bare hands. I think that he was probably brought on later on in the, the trialing process, or at least the decision-making process. I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't think he had as much to do with at least the selection of the roster. I think that he was probably more involved in bringing on um, someone like Yeah from from uh, LFC. Yeah, that team is just, I don't know what they do. Because at this point, you've just invested so much money. It's not like you just say, well, let's wipe it clean. Let's pay out the... Because another thing is a lot of these players are probably under guaranteed contracts. So if you were going to just gut the roster, you still got to pay all those other players and then pay on you know, whoever, whatever new Korean players you're going to bring on, you still have to pay them too. Something that I don't know if Mayhem necessarily wants to do. So they're probably going to have to at least stick it out with 90% of this roster. I just think that they need to move in a more consistent direction, at least in terms of like the internal communication goes. Sure. All right. So getting to the end now, um, we'll have a little bit of fun here. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions, which you have not been given in advance. Okay. Um, so you ready? I'm All right, ready. here we go. Pick one or the other. Violet or shoe? Ooh, a uh, shoe. 
Better record at the end of the year, Mayhem or Justice? Mayhem. One bedroom apartment. You have to share a bunk bed with either Johnny or Bren for a year. Which one? Oh, Jonathan, every time. More frustrating, Dark Souls or Sekiro? Ooh, Dark Souls. Your least favorite thing about living in the States? Uh, not being able to pay with contactless and having to r- <laughs> write out an unbelievable amount of, of, of paperwork every time I buy a beer. I have to sign two <laughs> documents every time I buy a beer. What is that It's so about? true. Rant about American bread for five to ten seconds. American bread, honestly, is just the worst. It's full of this corn syrup stuff, and for some reason, the ability to turn wheat into something doughy has been lost throughout the ages in America. The only good bread I've had here was made by a Frenchman who came over and just realized that the entirety of America is unable to make any kind of bread-based produce and instead just makes croissants out of his of his backyard and sells them. And they're fantastic, better than anything you can get anywhere else. It, it's doughy, it's chewy, it's it's the crust is bad, it's, ugh, it's not good. I knew that would strike a nerve. City or United? I don't follow football, but uh, City, I suppose. I don't know. Name one player with quote-unquote nutty aim. Happy. Toronto, Philly, Gladiators. One doesn't make season playoffs. Which one? Oh, Toronto, Philly, Gladiators. One doesn't make season playoffs. Uh, Toronto. Guangzhou, Philly, maybe. Hangzhou, and Chengdu. One does make season playoffs. Which one? Uh, Hangzhou. I still got faith in the spark. I probably shouldn't, but I do. Who wins the grand finals of Overwatch League's 2019 season? Uh, uh, at this point, I'm going to go with NY. NYXL? Yeah, I'm going to go with NYXL. I, I mean, I, I did say in, in my original thing that it was going to be London, but I've... That's not even... I've yeah, broken up with London. Go there. <laughs> okay, last thing. So one thing that I'm going to do with every guest that comes on, we're going to do, it's called Six Stack, and it's just going to be basically like a top six list countdown of something that I feel like fits to them. And since there's just been so much funny banter between you, people that you've lived with. I want you to give me the six people, whether it's Overwatch League talent, staff, players, who you'd share a house with for an entire season. Who do you oh, pick and man. why? Uh, okay. Number one would be Jonathan Reinforced Larson. The man is a, is a lovely human being, and we get along incredibly well, and we wouldn't bother each other. Number two... I mean, I'm going to go with Bren. I'd, I'd live with Bren again. It's funny. <laughs> it's, it's chaos, but it's funny. This house would be enormous as well. There's going to be seven of us. Okay, yes, so, so it's all right. We're going to hire someone to clean because we can pool our money together. Um, I'll go with... Uh, I'll go with... I'll go with Super as well. That guy cracks me up. Um, and then... okay, you guys, some- It's been so good when you guys have had... Like that's one of the worst things I think about. Well, I shouldn't say worst things. I'm sure you're happy to get here, but just oh my god, those the shoulder content, the second screen stuff that you were doing streaming while uh, while Al was yeah. on with Super and Bren there was so much fun. It, it, it it's just incredibly funny. I don't know. I don't know how, but every time Super opens his mouth, he says something incredibly dumb, and it makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who else would I go with? Um, 
Oh, well, you see, I was going to say similar there because he's the most unbelievably chill dude in the world. And he's he's so cool. Um, he's a fantastic human being. But at the moment, he lives in a van and I never want him to stop living in a van because I think that's the most similar thing in the world. He, he, he lives in a van and just tours around L.A., sleeping wherever he likes, going climbing all over the place. So I wouldn't want to limit him to live in a house. <laughs> I had so, no idea that that was his living situation. That's oh, amazing. It's so good. He like he's pimped out a van and he just rocks around in it. Goes down to Joshua Tree, goes climbing whenever he wants. Just roams. He's he's living his best life. He sounds like the most unbelievable hipster, but he just he's so down to earth that you, it's he's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, who else then? Oh, I'd go with some UK boys then. I'd go with uh, Christopher. He's always fantastic to hang out with. Uh, I was hanging out with uh, Cruz as well. He's funny. I, I'd live with him. Uh, oh, I'd live with Ethan. I don't know whether you know Ethan Spector, who oh, worked with. Uh, yeah, easy. Yeah, easy. Yeah, he's uh, he's a fun guy. How many is that up to? I, I think know. you're up to eight now. So you either have to kick out Cruz. Okay. Yeah, I'll kick out Cruz. Fuck Cruz. He's a feeder. I would kick out Christopher because he loves American hot dogs. I would not want to live with someone who. See, here's another thing. You and probably you and Christopher are the two people who I've heard rant about how terrible American food is the most. Yeah. But with Christopher, he backs it up after he, he rants. We're in a voice call together and he says, I have to go. Uh, I have to order American hot dogs from Postmates. If that's your go to food in America, you don't get to rate our food. I'm sorry. If that's like what you jump on, you think that that's the be all end all of american cuisine you don't have any say in the matter you're all, <laughs> isn't america these... known for the hot dogs i don't know but he's he actually calls them american hot dogs which i guess suggests that hot dogs are different somewhere else i don't know why <laughs> anyone would eat that type of meat it's not even really meat i don't know what it is it's disgusting but christopher loves them that right there's so... the deal breaker he doesn't get yeah. to live in the house yeah okay okay christopher's out then <laughs> christopher's out yeah. Oh, oh, wait a second. I'm going to kick Cruz out as well. And I'm going to get, um, I'm going to get, uh, oh my God. I've blanked on her name as well. Uh, the Philadelphia Fusion chef. What's her name? Heidi. I haven't se- Heidi. Yes. Chef Heidi. I haven't, I haven't seen her in months. That's I was wondering if you were going to bring in anyone that had any actual sk- like household skills that they might be able to contribute. I know. Just I, haven't like a- f- I haven't thought about this enough. <laughs> no, those are good answers. Um, All right, man. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, We're also going to be bringing on Yiska for episode two this week. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully we get this one out either later today. Today's Tuesday, I believe. Yeah, Tuesday or the very latest. We'll have it out Wednesday morning. So Sideshow, thank you so much. And uh, good luck getting back into the swing of things with stage two coming up. Thank you very much. Nice to have you.